When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The lining of the gut is only one cell thick, and they're all kind of held together with what are called tight junctions. Locked arm in arm, like a game we played, Red Rover, Red Rover, that kids don't play anymore. So the bacteria are foreign, if you will, and there is an interaction with the bacteria in the gut. Mm. And what this model shows is that as those bacteria begin to break holes in the gut, break down the gut, then you can show that that is when aging starts. And the more the wall breaks down, the faster you age. So what happens is if we damage this lining, and boy, do we damage this lining, swallow an ibuprofen, it's like swallowing a hand grenade, take some food with Roundup in it. Roundup will destroy the lining of your gut. Uh, it's really good stuff. Roundup in itself will destroy your bacterial population. Hey everybody, welcome to Health Theory. Today's episode is round two with the extraordinary Dr. Stephen Gundry. He's a New York Times best-selling author of The Plant Paradox and most recently, The Longevity Paradox. He's also an award-winning, renowned heart surgeon and researcher as well as the former president of the American Heart Association. But the crazy part of his story is that he left the profession he built his entire career around at the height of his success when he realized he was just dealing with symptoms and not addressing the underlying causes of those symptoms. And that's where I wanna start today. Your book kicks right off with the myths of aging. Now, yeah. I wanna believe that we can sort of age in reverse, that we can get stronger, better looking, more robust as we age, but that is not conventional wisdom. But you debunk it right off the bat. Yeah. Hit us with it. We want to be Benjamin Button. You know, you uh, we want to actually de-age. And I really think it's possible. In fact, when people look at my pictures, uh, really at the height of my surgical career in the mid-90s, and then compare those pictures to me now, uh, there's actually no doubt that I'm actually a younger man than I was uh, almost 30 years ago. Better skin, like what are we judging Be that by? Better skin, better, yeah, better texture of my skin. One of the things I talk about in the book extensively is your, your skin is actually a mirror of the lining of your gut. Your, mm. The lining of your gut, which is the surface of a tennis court, is actually your skin turned inside out. What is it that makes you think that the gut is so influential in aging specifically? Because people think of like, I'm going to get arthritis, it's wear and tear, it just is what it is. I've used my joints so much that, you know, they're, they're going to be tapped out. Like it, it actually does make intuitive sense. And so what you talk about in the book is really sort of kicks people into a new way of thinking about it. So why is the gut so tied to what we think of as actual aging? So... Uh... Here's the deal. Uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful animal model for aging 
that involves a little worm uh, called C. elegans. Uh, it only lives about three weeks, so you can do an intervention in it and kind of instantly know mm. what's going to happen. And so in this model, the influence of the bacteria, the microbiome, and the wall of this little creature's gut, the, the lining of the gut is only one cell thick. And they're all kind of held together with what are called tight junctions, locked arm in arm like a game we played, Red Rover, Red Rover, that kids don't play anymore. So the bacteria are foreign, if you will, and there is an interaction with the bacteria in the gut. Mm. And what this model shows is that as those bacteria begin to break holes in the gut, break down the gut, then you can show that that is when aging starts. And the more the wall breaks down, the faster you age. So let's uh, break down what is aging exactly? Like what are we, so I think most people would sort of go to um, mobility, um, aesthetics, and maybe accumulation of disease? Like how would you define aging specifically? So aging to me is the either quick or slow breakdown of the gut wall. How do we know that? Well, we can take a look at 105-year-old people around the world. You can look at their microbiome, the collection of bugs in their gut. They will have a very diverse set of bugs. They'll have, you know, it, it, it takes a village, the, this really incredible tropical rainforest. And those microbiome, that collection, will be identical to a healthy 30-year-old. Hmm. So what that says is that these healthy 105-year-olds are healthy because they have the microbiome of a 30-year-old. And it's this microbiome that is not attacking the wall of their gut, that's actually existing with the wall of the gut. And we, I talk a lot about this crazy bug that may be the key to longevity, and it's got a great name, Ackermansia mucinophilia. Say yeah. that three times. Say that once. Yeah. So this bug lives in a mucus layer that uh, lines our gut. And if we're lucky, and the way we're designed, we're supposed to have a layer of mucus lining our gut before we get to the cells. And that mucus is there to, number one, trap my favorite subject, lectins, which are plant proteins that are looking for sugar molecules. And number two, it's to protect the wall of the gut from bacteria that might do us harm. So Ackermansia lives in the mucus layer and it actually eats the mucus. Now here's the best part. The more mucus it eats, the more our gut cells produce mucus. And it actually increases the mucus layer. Mm. And the book is actually lots of tricks on how to make this guy happy. Because the thicker our mucus, the younger we are. In fact, fun fact, Metformin, we now know, works by increasing the amount of acromancia in our gut, not by some magical, mystical thing happening in our body. 
In fact, interestingly, about 25% of people, when they start metformin, get diarrhea. And uh, it's actually because the gut microbiome changes dramatically on, on metformin. And one of the reasons is that ecromancia becomes predominant. Interesting. So yeah. at a cellular level, what's happening with metformin, something that simply triggers the body to produce mucus in general? Is it is it changing the microbiome? You called it a rainforest earlier. Is it changing the makeup of that rainforest? Or is it just actually compelling the body to create more mucus? No, I think it's actually changing. It's selecting out for acromancia. Now, how does it do that? Because there's actually kind of a shag carpeting on the lining of our gut. Uh, so plants have roots going into the ground. Yep. We know the roots actually absorb nutrients because of the soil microbiome. All the bacteria, all the fungi actually deliver the nutrients into the roots of the plant. Well, we have a root system and that root system is this shag carpet that makes the, the lining of our gut a tennis court. Okay. So the reason it's so big in surface area is it loops around itself hmm. with little one cell thick protrusions called microvilli. Okay. Okay. These are our roots. They literally are our roots. At the bottom of these microvilli are what are called crypts. At the bottom of the crypts, there is a pocket of bacteria that are essential and they're down there in storage in fact fun fact we now know the appendix is not useless it's one of these storage systems mm -hmm. to repopulate our gut if you lose your appendix you're screwed for that part of your storage system but down at the bottom of these crypts are these little collection of bacteria and at the bottom of these crypts are our stem cells that actually repopulate these microvilli so what happens is if we damage this lining, and boy, do we damage this lining, swallow an ibuprofen, it's like swallowing a hand grenade, take some food with Roundup in it, Roundup will destroy the lining of your gut. Uh, it's really good stuff. Roundup in itself will destroy your bacterial population. All right, really fast, because I, I think this is important. And for some reason, um, even though I've had you on the show before, I read you the book, like the way that you've started talking about some of the places that you're gonna find, also known as glyphosate, yeah. in the system that basically they're part of why they're doing it. It was originally created as a, um, or patented as a antibiotic, Correct. which that was already shocking. And then you said they use it as a way to be able to dry the crops out so they can harvest them on a specific day. Yeah. Very good. But then you said they don't, no one wipes them off. And so it ends up in Cheerios and other things. And I was like, what? Like, I thought if I was washing my vegetables, I was going to be fine. So this was a little bit startling to me. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, a little off subject, but they've looked at recently a study of 35 oat products in the United States, and all of them had glyphosate in them. Some of them at very high levels. Some of our breakfast cereals, most of our granolas, most of our granola bars, most California wines, including a couple of organic wines, have glyphosate in them because the, the fields are sprayed, the weeds are sprayed with glyphosate mm. between the vines to kill the weeds. 
Research at, at MIT has shown that not only does glyphosate kill bacteria, because bacteria use the same reproductive pathway that plants use, mm -hmm. it's the shikimate pathway. Humans don't use the shikimate pathway. And so Monsanto, when they invented it, said, hey, uh, this kills plants, but don't worry, it doesn't kill humans because we don't use the same mm -hmm. pathway for life. And everybody said, oh, that's great. Uh, you know, this is a miracle. Uh, what they didn't tell anybody is the bacteria use the same shikimate mm -hmm. pathway. And again, they patented this as an antibiotic. They didn't patent it as an herbicide. What else are people doing that is... Um the, breaking the bonds or killing the bacteria? The antibiotics in their food mm -hmm. or that they're taking themselves. In fact, study just out this morning shows that women who take antibiotics just, you know, because a urinary tract infection, sore throat, uh, have a much higher incidence of heart disease than women who don't. Routinely. That's scary. Now, th this gets into something in your book that was super freaky. Uh, I've never heard somebody say, and I'm not saying that no one has ever said it, I had never heard anybody say until reading this that um, heart disease is an autoimmune disease. Yeah. So because it ties into this point, how is heart disease, autoimmune disease, how does that start in the gut? What is that whole chain reaction? Okay. So um, Michael DeBakey, one of the premier originators of heart surgery from Houston, Texas, would always say that cholesterol has nothing to do with causing heart disease. That it's an innocent bystander mm. that literally gets sucked into uh, inflammation at the wall of the blood vessel. And I use the example of, let's say, you know, I'm an alien and I'm, you know, circling above LA and I report back that I'm pretty sure that ambulances cause car accidents <laughs> because every time I see a car accident, there's an ambulance there mm -hmm. and the ambulance must have caused it. Well, you know, causation, association is not causation. So the fact that we see cholesterol in deposits, and mm -hmm. I see it, you know, every day in the operating room, there's cholesterol in these plaques, doesn't mean that the cholesterol caused the right. plaque. So I learned this as an infant heart transplant surgeon. What we found was, we thought, uh, naively, that if we got these hearts in as a newborn, that the immune system of the newborn would not be mature enough and would say, oh yeah, that, you know, that's my heart, uh, mm. I don't know any better, and yeah. it wouldn't attack it. Well, we were partially right, but as the years went and we studied these kids, they started to get uh, coronary artery disease. Their blood vessels got thicker and thicker. That is super interesting. And we're going, well, what the heck? So, Did they look just like somebody who we would have associated with too much cholesterol in their diet? It looks just like diabetic coronary artery disease. Interesting. Just like it. And so when you actually look at the blood vessels, the kids, the lining of the blood vessel is from the donor, from a foreigner. Mm. The blood going through is from the kid. And the blood says, wait a minute, these are foreign cells. And they're, I'm going to attack them. Just think of a splinter under your finger. You 
you know, it gets all red. So that's inflammation. And what was happening was then cholesterol was basically coming as a patch, an ambulance, and it was getting caught up in this inflammation. So then we look at these adults who obviously don't have heart transplants, and you go, well, that's funny. This looks just like a kid who has you know, somebody else's heart. And there's an attack on the blood vessels that looks identical as if it was a foreign object. Mm. So that got so me going, you know, this is an immunologic reaction. And in just a few weeks, and I can't tell you the paper because it's embargoed, I'm giving a paper at the American Heart Association vascular biology meeting that makes a pretty good case that lectins, which are a foreign protein mm. that can stick to sugar molecules on the surface of blood vessels, uh, are the cause of atherosclerosis in humans, and that removing lectins reduces the markers for that. All right, really fast. And we talked about this in our first issue or our first episode, but I, I think it bears repeating. Like, what's the real quick uh, breakdown of lectins and the the rhetoric you started using around kidney beans? I found really interesting. Yeah, so lectins are the plant defense system. One of the plant defense system. A pretty doggone good one. Plants do not want to be eaten. They don't want their babies eaten, and they have evolutionary pressures to mm. keep being eaten and have their babies not being eaten, and lectins are one of the ways to do this. They are sticky proteins that look for specific sugar molecules to stick to, and that incites an inflammatory response wherever they stick. We talked about joints wearing out. Joints do not come with a sell-by date or use-by date. There is no evidence that the wear and tear theory has anything to do with a human body. So we crazy. can constantly rebuild cartilage. Mm. But, like I talk about in the book, cartilage is broken down by certain cells and rebuilt by other cells. And we can, if you had arthritis, we could stick a scope in you, suck out some of the fluid we could actually find bacterial particles in your joint fluid. Wow, okay, so really fast, because I know where you're going with that, but now, now connect those dots. How did those parts get into the joint? Lectins broke down the wall of your gut. And on the other side of your gut is 65% of all your white blood cells. 65% of your mm -hmm. immune system is lining your gut. What are they doing there? Because the gut is where the outside world gets through. Mm. And they're there to sound the high alert and attack them when they get through. One of the reasons we store fat in our gut, one of the reasons we have a beer belly or a wheat belly, is we are actually putting fat down where the action is. It's to supply the troops. Oh. That's why we put it there. In fact, when I operate on people with advanced coronary disease, there is a layer of fat that is on the surface of the blood vessels. And there is a perfect correlation to the amount of inflammation and disease in the blood vessel with the amount of fat surrounding the blood vessel. Whoa. This is in humans published studies. So we, this is not conjecture, and I reference this in all my books. 
Wow, okay, so here's my understanding of fat 45 seconds ago, which may now be changing. Um, one, that fat is essentially an organ, mm -hmm. but I think of it as an energy storage unit mm -hmm. that we can certainly access and, and break down mm -hmm. and turn it into energy, uh, that the body is very efficient at burning ketones, certainly the brain. Um, so what exactly is it doing at these areas of inflammation? So maybe 15 years ago, we thought the fat was actually causing the inflammation because mm. wherever we found fat, there were lots of white blood cells. What I think recent information has proven is that the fat is not the evil guy that we thought it was, that the fat is there because of the inflammation, and the inflammation is there because you have a leak in your gut. You have a leaky gut. Interesting. Your white blood cells require huge amounts of energy to do their job. Okay, wow. And so you, it just, it's just like any army. You've got to have a supply line. You have to have food for the troops. All right, now let me ask a really difficult question. I have no idea if this even makes sense, but it makes sense to my layman's mind. So many people have gotten to a metabolic point of dysfunction so extreme that they really never access their fat stores. True. So if they're existing in that state and they have metabolic syndrome, and the body's like, yo, here's the fat, take it. I, we have inflammation, get ready, white blood cells. You're gonna have all the energy that you could ever use, but the body doesn't know how to click over into that mechanism because insulin levels are elevated. Is the fat getting there and the white blood cells are unable to use it, or that's a whole different thing and they're still able to use it? That's part of the problem. Oof. That's part of the problem. Yeah, you know, let me use an example I used to use with my patients, uh, the, f the flu virus. So the virus has a has a barcode on it that our immune cells scan, literally, and say, oh, you know, that's a nasty virus, that's the flu virus, we know this guy, we need to get ready to attack this. Mm -hmm. And we need to get all of our immune system up and running, and we need to make sure that the immune system has enough power to do this. So what do we do? We actually make you, me, hurt hurt to move because if we move the muscles are going to take all the energy if you lay down then all the energy is available for this battle to go after this virus mm. our immune system literally reads barcodes mm. to tell whether somebody's a friend or a foe and lectins have fascinating barcodes that mimic other uh, proteins in our body and when this immune system is ramped up, the immune system goes around the body and looks for proteins that are lectins. And let's say they come to a thyroid and they go, oh my gosh, you know, this poor woman's thyroid is full of what appear to be lectins. They're not quite the same but it's close enough and we should you know, shoot to kill and we'll ask questions later. Mm. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk through the process that we've just discussed because wow, uh, for me anyway, and for anybody listening that's like me, once I can picture it, once I can understand it, then it's like I can begin to manipulate it and predict what I should do and not do. 
Okay, so you eat something. It could be lectins, uh, which you'll find in the skin and seeds of nightshade vegetables sure. is one it's example. Yep. Or peanuts. Or peanuts. Uh, so you eat these things. They like uh, glyphosate, like um, ibuprofen apparently. They will go in and they'll disrupt um, my microbiome. They break down the single, the bonds between the single cell lining of my gut. That allows either entire um, elements of proteins, in the case of lectins, or um, pieces of bacteria. Yep. I'm assuming dying pieces, dead pieces, a broken the cell, arm. Yeah, the of... cell wall of bacteria. It, it turns out when bacteria divide, and they do all the time, I mean, there's trillions and trillions and trillions of them, you make about anywhere from a half a pound to a pound of dead cell wall bacteria every day. Whoa. And so those pieces are normally excreted mm -hmm. with your poop. Um, most of your poop is actually bacteria. That's so weird. That's what it is. So anyhow, our immune system is so afraid of bacteria. They're supposed to stay on their side of the wall. Yep. That if they see the you know, signature of that bacterial cell wall, it doesn't know that it's not a whole bacteria. Mm. It doesn't know that it's dead. So we can take in human volunteers, LPSs, uh, dead bacteria, inject them into your bloodstream, and you will go into septic shock Whoa. as if we put living bacteria in you. Whoa, because what's actually happening is my immune system is going crazy. Exactly. The immune system doesn't know any better. And so, holy cow, you know, there's, there's thousands and millions of bacteria all of a sudden in us. And, you know, we got to do something. And they just start attacking, ah, like crazed yeah. monkeys going nuts. Yeah, exactly. And so those particles, whether they're the lectins, which... By the way, on lectins really fast, the whole notion of thinking about plants not as these inert things, which until starting to read you, I always did. I just thought of plants as, as completely inert. When you talk about them as being sort of the world's most sophisticated chemical warfareist, that's where it's like, whoa. Then you begin to realize maybe what's really going on. Okay, so these lectins or particles of bacteria get into the bloodstream, immune system scans it, maybe they've ended up in the thyroid, maybe elsewhere, and it just fucking goes nuts starts attacking, you get inflammation, which has a whole host of knock-on effects from could be um, cholesterol trying to patch, could be the fat wrapping around the blood vessels or the arteries or whatever the case may be. And, you know, we're, we're now, most of us are now convinced that Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and dementia is neuroinflammation. Okay. And, what's and what people are picking up on, because they're all going to talk about the uh, beta amyloid plaques. And you've talked about how some of the co companies targeting that may actually be accelerating your yeah. onset of dementia, which is really terrifying. Really bad. Um, is that this is, again, the alien blaming the ambulance for car accidents. Yeah. So most amyloid is actually produced by bacteria in the gut. And Dale Bredesen keeps saying, he says, it's not the amyloid in the brain that we should be looking at. And no wonder $40 billion of investment in anti-amyloid drugs has been a total and useless failure. $40 billion. 
He says, because amyloid is produced in the gut by bacteria. And we know certain bacteria that make it and certain that don't. Mm. And why would we give the amyloid producing bacteria what they want to eat, which is simple sugars and saturated fats, the Western diet. Mm. Plus, the amyloid can't get out of the gut unless your gut is leaky. It's too big a protein to be absorbed. Mm. So Dale and I, for years, have been saying, hey guys, you're looking at the wrong spot to go after Alzheimer's. So really fast, let me ask, are you saying that beta amyloid plaques are not actually created in the brain and that they would never make their way to the brain? If you won't make them unless they get to the brain and then stimulate more production. That's so weird. Yeah. Why would the brain have the ability to produce something in the brain that would never be turned on unless it started from a problem in the gut? That seems way counterintuitive. It's basically, so we now, we now know we have, we have a leaky brain and there's okay. increased- Meaning things are crossing the blood-brain barrier that, that should not. That would have never done it. And okay. there's actually a beautiful new paper that probably explains why cholesterol and amyloid and dementia actually um, coexist in people with the ApoE4 gene, um, the quote Alzheimer's gene. Um, I got interested in ApoE4, which 30% of people carry, uh, as a heart surgeon because it causes heart disease. And Dale Bredesen got interested in it because it causes dementia, mm -hmm. Alzheimer's. And lo and behold, we now know there's an intimate connection between carrying the ApoE4 gene and how cholesterol can be mischievous to you in your brain and not necessarily somebody who doesn't carry mm -hmm. that gene. What is the ApoE gene, what is it doing? Great question. So it's a, it's a carrier molecule mm -hmm. of, among other things, cholesterol. And if you carry a four mutation uh, or a double four mutation, you do statistically have an increased risk of developing Alzheimer's. You also have an increased risk of developing heart disease. Because it's doing because what? Because it changes the way cholesterol is transported. Interesting, it's more efficient? It's, so it's getting more ambulances to the scene? It's actually worse. Let's suppose uh, the ApoE4 is a subway, mm -hmm. and it's carrying cholesterol, and it stops at a subway stop, and cholesterol gets off, and it goes into the cell, does its thing, and the cell says, okay, I've got plenty, thanks a lot, you can take the rest of the cholesterol back and take it someplace else. So it gets back on the subway, and the subway moves on. With the ApoE4 gene, what happens is it carries the cholesterol to the cell on the subway, but when the extra cholesterol tries to get back in, the subway doors are closed. Super clear. All right? And that's the problem. You know, this is a transport problem. It's dropping stuff off just fine, but normally it'd be picking up the stuff that, you mm -hmm. know, is needed, but it, it, so it builds up. Yeah. So it's kind of a double whammy. 
This is so interesting to me. It's crazy. Uh, we have a lot of ground to cover here. So one, I want to talk about fecal uh, microbial transplants, which are really interesting. So I think we have sort of a really basic understanding. Um, your book goes into a lot of detail, so people should definitely check it out because it's so interesting the more that I understand this stuff. Um, but we have a basic understanding so far in the time that we've had together today. Now, how can fecal microbial transplant help with that? Why does that work? And why didn't it get widespread adoption? So back in the 70s, when broad-spectrum antibiotics came out, they, they were truly miracle drugs. Because before that, we had to uh, actually culture a bacteria, find out what antibiotic it was sensitive to, and then give that antibiotic. Mm. You know. And that would take, oh gosh, 48, 72 hours to do. When broad-spectrum antibiotics were invented, it was, you know, it was a shotgun approach. Mm -hmm. No worry. We don't, even know, we don't have to know what you have. Uh, here, take this. We're going to wipe out right. everything, which was great in a lot of ways. But what we didn't know was that we also wiped out every last living bacteria, for the most part, in our gut. Mm -hmm. And we were so naive back then that we didn't realize that that microbiome was incredibly important. And so we developed a lot of people all of a sudden with what was then called pseudomembranous enterocolitis. It's now called C. difficile, uh, Clostridium difficile. Mm. And so these guys got horrible infections in the lining of their gut. And nobody had any treatment for it. These people were dying in hospitals after getting broad-spectrum antibiotics. Mm -hmm. And we're going, what the heck? So uh, my, one of my mentors, who was the chairman of the Department of Surgery at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, um, said, you know, this has got to be, we've wiped out most of the bacteria in the gut. And this is an ecosystem where there are checks and balances so all of a sudden now we've wiped out most of the checks and balances and there's probably a rogue bacteria that's taken over. It's party time, you know. So clever. Party time. So he said, we gotta get you know, good stuff back. And he said, where are we gonna get that? And he starts looking around at the medical students. True story. <laughs> and he said, you know, medical students, they're pretty healthy. So once a week, this is the mid-1970s, they would pass around this plastic bucket. It was called the honey pot. And we'd take it into the john and take a crap. You know, you actually had to hold it, you know, get, get to school and, you know, take a crap. And he'd take it to his lab. And I'll never forget, we had wearing blenders, you know, and homogenize all this medical oh. student poop and put it in enema bags and give these people fecal enemas. This is wow. in the 70s. And he would have before and after pictures and he'd go to meetings and show, you know, this horrible inflammation, this horrible infection in the colons. And then a week later, it's pristine, it's beautiful. You know, the mm. people are singing Kumbaya inside the colon. And, and everybody goes, oh, he's making this stuff up. That can't happen. And so people did not believe it because we had no idea. No one had, had sequenced the human microbiome. Mm. That was really only five years ago. Well, now, since the sequencing of the human microbiome, it's, you know, you go, well, of course, you know, there were 10,000 different species mm. of bacteria 
in, in you and me. And right. In fact, a month ago, they found another thousand. And normally, there are beautiful checks and balances. But it's when these checks and balances mm -hmm. get disturbed by taking a round of antibiotics or as simply as eating meat where the chicken or the pork or the beef was given antibiotics. You know, when we eat that, they have residual antibiotics right. in them and we eat the antibiotics. Oof. Talk to me about the holome, holobiome. Holobiome. Yeah. Yeah, I, so there are a number of researchers that think we should use holobiome rather than microbiome. Microbiome mm. pretty much attempts to define the bugs that are living in our gut. Right. We have an oral microbiome, and we actually have a cloud of bacteria that live in the air around us. And there is this theory, which I really do like, that our personal space is actually determined when your holobiome, your cloud, bumps up against mine. Dude, that would be so weird well, if that's true. Well, I mean... Because you feel something like... Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. feel that. And, and there's certain people that you're, you're allowing in closer. Right. And it gets so twilight zone-y that I, you know, I always play that music in my head. We know that kissing, for instance, is a universal uh, human, great ape, and often animal characteristic. And there's some pretty cool, wacky suggestion that I really like that kissing, you are exchanging your oral microbiome and your bacteria are actually deciding if your person next to you is compatible with them. You've heard of that whole study where they have women just smell these t-shirts and rank them in order of desirability. Yeah. And the women are like, I have no idea why you're making me do this. But they put them in order of most genetic diversity or difference from their own to uh, most similar to their own. Yeah. That's surreal. Yeah. And women, you know, and I, I say this as, as often as anyone will say, women have a gut feeling mm. far better than men. And that is because women actually are far better capable of listening to their microbiome. And I get mm. kind of deep into the fact that uh, our microbiome is inherited from our mother. We mm. get it from our mother. And all of the mitochondria, the little energy-producing organelles in us, are actually engulfed bacteria that are inherited from our mother. And they have their own separate DNA and their maternal DNA. And there is now actually very good evidence that the bacteria in our microbiome communicate via text messages that now have been measured to mitochondria. They're sisters and about how things are going mm. in the, the body and the outside world. It's so crazy. So, and so talk, w women trust your gut. Yeah. And, uh, going back to the microbiome coming from your mother, yeah. Um, I've become probably a little like oversteppy. Like I normally like, hey, whatever you want to do, until I hear somebody um, saying that 
oh, I, I'm, I have a planned C-section. So look, if you need one, obviously get one, Jesus. Absolutely. But if you don't need one, I'm like, make sure that you smear the baby in the vaginal fluid at a minimum. And people are always like, whoa. But just trying to pass that microbiome on, and you said there was a recent study that came out about autism and fecal microbial transplants and how the link between a, a successful, maybe the wrong word, microbiome and an unsuccessful one can manifest as autism. Talk to me about that study. Yeah, there's, um, we've known for actually a long time since the microbiome was identified and sequenced that we know that number one, kids with autism have a lot more irritable bowel, mm -hmm. and they have a lot more GI issues, and they actually have a very different microbiome than, quote, normal. And there's been a suggestion for years that maybe it is that microbiome that is contributing, not going to say cause, mm. autism. There's even more exciting work in gynecology and obstetrics that the, there is a microbiome in the vagina that we know about, but there is a microbiome of the placenta itself. And there's some actually exciting work that perhaps the microbiome of the placenta is the most important in terms of educating the neonate, the fetus's immune system. Do you only encounter that as um, you're actually born and you go through no, it? During like, pregnancy. So the whole time you're washing it. During, then why would a C-section be so problematic? Well, so one of the theories of autism is that this is an in utero problem that happened to the kid before he was born or she was born. The reasons I say he is that boys have it far mm. more than girls. And that now there is interesting evidence that we should be working on the maternal microbiome during, before pregnancy. And certainly during pregnancy, we need to start early in making sure the microbiome is right. So getting back to autism, there was a recent study just published, and don't quote me on the exact details, but it comes out of Australia. And because of this connection with autistic kids having funny bowels and a funny microbiome, they, with an institutional review board permission, did oral fecal transplants in a large number of autistic mm. kids. And they did this for about six weeks. Almost immediately, 50% of the autism symptoms subsided. 50%. Man. And the paper has now followed these kids for two years. And the 50% reduction in symptoms has continued. Wow. And if that doesn't make the case that you know, the gut and the microbiome has such an incredible effect on the brain, I don't know what does. Mm, no kidding. <laughs> now that we know that, and your, your book goes into great detail, including recipes and all kinds of stuff, What's a quick overlay of lifestyle and dietary choices that people should make if they want to um, die young at a ripe old age, as the uh, subheadline of the book goes? So we know that there are ways to give these good guys, like Eckermansia, uh, what they like to eat. And they love resistant starches. They love tubers, like yams, like jicama, like taro root, like yucca or yucca. 
they love uh, mushrooms. And there's a beautiful recent study out of uh, South Asia of people basically having a 90% reduction in Alzheimer's if you eat two cups of mushrooms a week. What? So there is this incredible compound in mushrooms. Uh, I'll probably fracture it. Ergothionine, thionine, that actually crosses the blood-brain barrier better than turmeric, curcumin, and actually protects uh, against neuroinflammation. Hmm. And it turns out that mushrooms absolutely positively feed these friendly bacteria. And mushrooms contain this compound called spermidine. Hmm. It's a polyamine that study after study shows promotes longevity. Okay, so those are some of the things. Also, inulin-containing compounds. Hmm. So inulin is present in chicory. Uh, you can buy inulin made out of yacon root in any store as a sweetener. So inulin feeds acromancia. And so it's present in chicory, it's present in radicchio, Belgian endive, uh, Jerusalem artichokes, sunchokes. They're just pure inulin. Mm. So the more of this stuff you eat, uh, the more of this bug you're going to grow. So that's number one. So eat for them. Number two, exercise. Beautiful study in women. Women have more Alzheimer's disease than men. And so you look at an exercise program in women. Women who exercise regularly, routinely, kind of from midlife on, have a 90% reduction in Alzheimer's. Whoa. And compared to women who don't exercise routinely. Mm. And in the women who are going to get Alzheimer's, it's 11 years later than if they didn't exercise. So, I mean, think about that. If we had a drug that had a 90% reduction in Alzheimer's, yeah. you know, how much would we pay for that? You, know, you and I would be <laughs> popping that nuts. every day. Uh, we wouldn't have $40 billion wasted on amyloid drugs. Mm. But it's available by housework, by gardening by getting a dog and walking it twice a day. Okay, that's interesting. So when you say housework, why do you say that? I think people would be confused by that. It turns out that, uh, give me an example, my my mother actually scrubbed her floors until the day she died at 90, uh, even though there were Swifters and things Mm. like that. And she did it as an exercise program. Exercise changes the gut microbiome to a friendly microbiome. Meditation, yoga changes the gut microbiome. It seems impossible. It's so interesting that they're in a two-way communication. Yeah, yeah, it literally, and there's, there's even some really cool stuff that yoga postures uh, actually move this microbiome mm. around in your gut, and they actually get signals, probably electrical signals, so all these chakras that, you know, in Eastern medicine, it's probably all this part of this really amazing communication system that Western medicine is just going, oh, come on, that's all voodoo. Yeah. Because Seems we couldn't impossible. measure it before. Mm. Yeah. So exercise is really important. Lastly, uh, <coughs> I really want people to have a brainwash day mm. at least once a week. So. Uh, in the last couple of years, we've learned that there is a 
lymph system in the brain called the glymphatic system. And it, no one actually believed it existed, but now it, it exists. And the brain actually, in deep sleep, which happens very early in the sleep cycle, goes through a literal wash cycle. Mm -hmm. It shrinks by about 20%. And all of these toxins, like amyloid, like tau, like bad pieces of protein, are actually squeezed out of the brain, like wringing out mm -hmm. a sponge. And it happens in deep sleep, and it happens early in the sleep cycle. So we have to have a lot of blood flow to our brain to do that. The brain uses huge amounts of blood flow, but we have to have even more. So the evidence is that you need about a three or four hour window before the last meal of your day, mm -hmm. before you go to sleep. Why? Because digestion is actually really energy expensive. Mm -hmm. So we put huge amounts of blood flow down into our gut. If you eat near the time you go to bed, that blood flow is down in your intestines and it doesn't go up to your brain. Mm -hmm. So there's actually a recent study of men who had uh, unstable angina or heart attack, and they followed those men who ate late at night had a much higher incidence of a new wow. angina or new heart, heart attack. Mm -hmm. And so they're all really actually interconnected. So one day a week, I ask people, finish your last meal at six o'clock. Mm -hmm. If you go to bed at say 10. Right. If it's 11, finish it at 7. Do not snack before bedtime. And allow yourself to have a brainwash. Better yet, skip a meal. And that gets in probably to the fourth point. You've got to have periods of extended lengths of time between eating. We were supposed to go prolonged periods of time before our next meal. Mm -hmm and break fast, we've talked about this before, it ruins your, you know, your morning stuff, uh, was you break your fast. And, it, and there's no definition of when you know, it's supposed to be breakfast. Right. That was from the dear old Kellogg's Cornflake Company telling people they had to eat breakfast. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that, the whole um, lifestyle that you just painted like, makes all the sense in the world. Like When you start looking at the research, even just like... So one, I can certainly speak to the anti-inflammatory properties of a lot of things that you're talking about, um, which that has been revolutionary in my life. Intermittent fasting has had a whole host of benefits for me anecdotally, and then certainly I think there's a lot of data backing things up. You've talked a lot about how eating is just an excuse to get olive oil in your mouth. Man, I hope you're right about that one because I have really um, taken that to heart. There does seem to be some pretty tremendous benefits to that. Um, it's, it's really pretty extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, it really is. Um, you know, and I, I show a lot of studies. I think the, probably the best one is the Predimed study out of Spain where just simplistically, they took 65-year-old people, divided them into three groups. One, they all ate a Mediterranean diet, Spain. Yeah. Uh, one group had to use a liter of olive oil per week. The second group had to eat the equivalent calories in walnuts primarily. The third group had a low-fat Mediterranean diet followed for five years. The in initial study was look at memory. The olive oil group and the walnut group had improved memory after wow. five years. The low fat group lost memory. The people in all groups with known coronary artery disease or stroke, the olive oil group had a 30% reduction in new events. The 
uh, low-fat group had an increase, uh, continued mm -hmm. events. So this stuff is miraculous. Um, it actually grows neurons, the polyphenols in olive oil. And here's another crazy fun fact. Now, there's a, a chemical that I talk about called TMAO, discovered by the Cleveland Clinic. TMAO is made by our gut bacteria, mm. primarily from animal proteins, particularly choline and carnitine. Choline's in egg yolks. We need choline for our brain, but our gut bacteria love it. They make it out of these, and TMAO damages blood vessels. To the Cleveland Clinic's credit, they said, well, wait a minute, uh, the Mediterranean diet seems to be very good for preventing heart disease, and yet these guys eat fish, they, you know, they eat cheeses, they eat salamis, what gives? So they actually discovered that there are polyphenols in certain olive oils, balsamic vinegar, and red wine that paralyze these enzyme systems in the bacteria. It doesn't mm -hmm. kill the bacteria, it paralyzes the enzymes, so you could eat all the choline and carnitine you want, but you will not make TMAO. Mm. So olive oil, balsamic vinegar, make a spritzer of balsamic vinegar and sparkling water. Yeah, you got me on that. Yeah, and have a glass of red wine. And so you, will prov you'll, you can still have your, you know, your meat and eat it too, mm. but I like not that. much. I like that. All right, tell people where they can find your book. Uh, Anywhere, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Audible. I actually did the Audible of this book. Uh, so if you want to hear my voice longer and longer, I, I read the book. My man. Uh, you can find it at Gundry MD. You can find me at drgundry.com. Come to my YouTube channel. I've got a podcast, the Dr. Mm, Gundry Podcast. Yes. I'm on Instagram, Facebook. Mm. Um, What's the one change that people could make that would have the biggest impact on their longevity? The one change, and I, you know, I get on my soapbox, is you've got to get your vitamin D level up. Take at least 5,000 IUs of vitamin D. No, a day? A day. The University of California, wow. San Diego, has shown that the average American to have an adequate vitamin D level should have 9,600 international units a day. The average American. Whoa. If you look at cancer patients, they almost always have a low vitamin D. Every one of my patients with autoimmune disease walks through the door with a low vitamin D. If you look at, if you like the telomere theory of aging, mm. where the little caps on the end of chromosomes, and it's a good theory of aging, the higher your vitamin D level, the longer your telomeres are. Interesting. And vitamin D, getting back to those little crypts down in, the, down mm. in our shag carpet, those stem cells actually have to be stimulated to move by vitamin D. And if you don't have vitamin D, they will sit there and you will have a leaky gut. There it so is. So that's number one. Number it. two, take time to release vitamin C mm. twice a day or chew a 500 milligram vitamin C four times a day. All right. We're one of the few animals that don't produce vitamin C mm. and you gotta have it for so many functions, particularly if women, they have to know that collagen will not repair all their wrinkles without vitamin C. Mm. Awesome. Beauty tip. Thank <laughs> you so much. That was really fantastic. Guys, please, 
everything that this man talks about is extraordinary. I find it wildly educating. I said this in the last episode, I'll say it again. There's something about the way that he explains it that I find uniquely capable of allowing me to understand things in their totality, to follow the bouncing ball all the way through so that I can understand what to do in my own life uh, on a predictive model. And he also, especially in the book, goes into great detail about things that you can do, recipes, all kinds of amazing stuff, so be sure to check it out. All right, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, and until next time, my friends, be legendary. Thank you.